This is Beyond Learning, where we explore stories of learning and stories of change. So my practice now focuses on putting everything upside down <laughs> and doing everything together. My name is Alexandra Kozura and today we'll be meeting with Maria Ciliona. She's an architect and educator based in Brussels and her work is pretty unique. She focuses on participatory architecture, which means that she includes communities in the design and construction of spaces. In other words, just imagine building your own house. If I were to do that, I would be terrified of the result. But to prove that it's possible, she will show us how to make a house out of clay. So Maria and I first meet at the Feminist Days in Brussels, at a workshop on ecofeminism where we both participate, and she agrees to introduce me to her work. A few weeks later, we meet at a community center called Elsenhof, where she has her practice. So perhaps we start from the yeah. atelier downstairs? Yeah, that's perfect. Let's do it. Hello. Hello. Um, so I think we can go down from here. Mm -hmm. This is the, the kitchen. They have quite a lot of uh, different projects here. Uh -huh. There's like a community cooking and then they cook with the recup as well. Uh-huh. But as I said, we're kind of new here, so uh -huh. I, I'm not completely aware of all things that are happening. And this is closed, which means I can't get in. We find someone with a set of keys, and then we get into another little hallway. There's one more door, and one more staircase. Great, thank you so much. Well, I love these Brussels houses, like all these yes. little stairs cases. This is actually, I think, three houses, and I think it was, I think it was like a very important yeah, yeah, person yeah. house here uh -huh. in, um, um, in Excel and uh, has been converted to communities. And you know, like there is this thing about uh, Flemish people who weren't mm. allowed to have community center for quite a long time mm -hmm. in Brussels, I think. And so they started buying houses because uh -huh. they had the money. So they started buying uh -huh. houses uh -huh. and convert them to um, to community center. So uh -huh. this is one of the cases. I will show you after yeah. the, the the garden. It's also mm -hmm. very beautiful. So this is our mess. It's beautiful. I love the mess. Yeah, I feel very at home when it's, right. when it's a mess. So as I said, we work mostly with the uh -huh. earth and materials. Uh -huh. So for example, here you can see we have some different kind of clays. She shows me a set of colorful houses made of clay by the kids who participated in a workshop here last Saturday. And then this is the work that we did with, with the kids the other day. So for this, we use different kind of pigments, uh, um, coloring up the, mm -hmm. the clay in order to make some different tones and things like this. You can touch on. Yeah, I can touch. I was, I was wondering <laughs> if I'm going to break yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, no, you can touch. They're kind of heavy. Yeah. And of course, they're a bit fragile because they're made by kids. We also have a look at the mallet. Okay. That's a kit that was used by the kids to mold the houses. Good. So this is the educational mallet for around the earth. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. you create your own molds. Ah, we build it up together. Duck. And you have the sides as well. And then from here, 
you have some um, to speak there, some uh, screws that you can put uh -huh. here and here on the side so that everything it's held in together. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you run the earth in it. Mm -hmm. And then when everything is done, you unpack your thing. And that's why kids love it because then I'm packing, things come out and uh -huh. you can see where they put their pearls and uh, the paillettes. <laughs> And this is called pisoir, mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, the object you run earth with. Mm -hmm. And of course this is on a very small scale mm -hmm. because this mm -hmm. is just to make little samples. Mm -hmm. uh, but on a larger scale, when we actually make walls or yeah. houses with this, then we use metal ones which are kind of square. Mm -hmm. And the sound is also kind of something because it's like tum, tum, tum. So you have this uh -huh. repetitive sound for hours and hours as you build, it becomes more like a meditative. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> we lock the mallet back in the suitcase yeah. and we take a look at the other material that Maria uses in her workshops. It's a set of bottles with powders and sand in different colors. Mm, and then we are experimenting with different kinds of sands and different kinds of clays. So yeah, there is uh, <laughs> a lot of different materials. We have yeah. different colors. I, I love and this like, selection of the different, um, like the, the, the products in different colors. Uh, when I and I moved to Brussels, I was in the flat chair, and one of my flatmates was um, always making her cleaning products. Ourselves. Uh, uh, yeah, and then I picked that up from her, and I have to say, well, they're mostly all white. All of the products you put in there, <laughs> so it's not as exciting. But it's uh, it's nice yeah. to also understand how they interact and what one does and the other. Yeah, yeah, done. it comes know. closer to kitchen, right? Yeah, like yeah. You make your own recipes. Yeah, I also make my own soaps and uh -huh. things like this. So. Uh, I do this kind of activities, but here you can really tell like what are the natural ones. Mm -hmm. Like they stop, I think here. Well, okay. this one it's still, but it's it's a very cobalt. It's very very rare in nature, but it mm -hmm. exists. This is also a natural material, and then here they are mm -hmm. not. This it's um it's a very specific type of sand that it can be also made um, synthetically. It's like glitter. It looks like litter, but this is actually a natural material. It's um, called carborandum. It's mm -hmm. a very expensive material, which is based on uh, silic uh, silicates. Mm -hmm. So it's found in nature mm -hmm. and it's like this. Uh -huh. So when you find it in, uh, in nature, for example, in beaches, mm -hmm. um, it's amazing because mm -hmm. it makes everything sparkle, mm -hmm. right? Everything is shining and sparkling. So uh, we could make a sparkling house using We this. can make a sparkling house, of okay. course. That's, that's the most important yes, thing. Yes, that's, that's my, <laughs> the idea behind my question. Can yes, I make yes, a sparkling yes. house? And of course, <laughs> by using the fluoral pink, uh -huh. then we can but also is, make pink houses. Let's agree, right? this is not natural, the fluoral No, rose. not this at is, all. This has some, something Not at all, uh -huh. but kids love it. Kids so. love, yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. We leave the atelier and look for a space where we can talk more about Maria's personal and professional background. How about like your, your journey to, to get here? I mean, on the one hand to get to Brussels because I understand that you didn't grow up here, but also to, to get to this topic. So did you first get interested in architecture and then you moved on to kind of working with more natural material and thinking about cleaning yes. spaces? How did it work? Uh, yes, absolutely. Like as I started, mm. I was actually just a traditional architect. It's actually interesting that you are asking this question. Uh -huh. 
It's interesting that you're asking this question because I'm writing uh, um, an article uh, uh-huh. now. Oh, sorry, Hello. I'm writing an article now for this uh, on this topic. Uh-huh. But um, so I, that was an occasion for me to go back and uh-huh. understand a lot of personal developments that I hadn't necessarily given uh, uh, a theoretical background to uh-huh. yet. Uh, yeah, we can go. We can go in the garden as well. Yeah, let's go to the garden. It looks like it's not very new now. So you started as a traditional. I started as a traditional architect, doing crazy hours, being paid mm. peanuts because that's kind of like the situation of architects right now. Yeah, that's what I've always heard. Yes, uh, working crazy hours, yeah. getting exploited, having burnouts. Mm. Um, and I had one. I didn't even know what a burnout was at the time, but until, I did have until it. Until I got you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even like afterwards. I understood that afterwards. But I think I had a burnout, and that was when I was still working in Italy, and mm. I was working for an architectural firm that is kind of well known, like a mm. '90s archi star. And mm. there was also some like underlying um, sexes mm. issues mm-hmm. there. Nothing too special, uh, just like everyday sexism uh, uh-huh. <laughs> in Italy. And then I decided that was too much, mm-hmm. so I left and I went to London. And that's where I started developing a different kind of perspective mm-hmm. on things. And at the time I was still working for an office, which is kind of traditional, but mm-hmm. uh, way more focused on art mm-hmm. and uh, with a very different kind of... Um, political and cultural background, mm-hmm. way more conscious about the community and the things mm-hmm. we were creating. Uh, so I worked there for four years and it was an amazing, beautiful mm-hmm. experience. And then still I decided that working from this kind of perspective where you're the designer, you're the architect and you just do things up to a certain point and just you, then you hand over to a construction company who does the design and build or whatever they call it. It's like so alienating from the actual mm-hmm. practice and it's impossible to actually be in contact with the people that will mm-hmm. live in those places as well and it also fragments the the way buildings and our cities are mm-hmm. understood because there is a perspective of, from the people that do the concept that do the design and then from the people that build and mm-hmm. construct and then from the people they build they they live and there is no interconnection interconnection between all of mm-hmm. this right so my practice now focuses on putting everything upside down <laughs> and doing everything together so starting uh-huh. from the people that will live there working uh-huh. with the communities make them build their own thing yeah build it with them and doing the design process through the building process which means mm-hmm. that you it's, it's way slower mm-hmm. it takes a lot more times and the results are not necessarily the mm-hmm. ones that the architects thought it was yeah. going to re- get at the beginning but it also means that the result it's a participatory result yeah, and it's ownership of there works. is an ownership uh-huh. right and there is appropriation that it's mm-hmm. already happening mm-hmm. while you're building it and mm-hmm. it means also that the result is not alienated from mm-hmm the people that are actually going to use the space and appropriate this space. Mm-hmm. But it is a consequence of mm-hmm. this, which is the normal way we should, we used to look at things. And also it becomes a way to gather people together and to create social links. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a form of empowerment, of mm-hmm. course, because when you build your own things, when you are able to maintain your own house and not just having to call someone every time you have a little problem, that means that you are freer, yeah. that you are, you have this power and mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so this is it's very important for me. Yeah. And of course, working with certain materials like mm -hmm. earth means also creating safer space, mm -hmm. healthier space, which mm -hmm. also have an impact on a psychological level. Yes, I was just a few weeks ago, I had a um, meeting with, maybe you know them, it's called Atelier Grot Island. It's like a social enterprise that's in Molenbeek uh, by, the, um, by the canal. Okay. Uh, so they have like a shop, they have a restaurant and they talk most, uh, they work mostly with people who are out of employment, mm. uh, but also with people who, for example, have had a burnout or right. who have very different psychological problems. But it's interesting, like for people who have psychological problems, they especially want to work with like, um, the like artisan part, like the more craft mm. space, so where they make things and then they go into a shop, mm. and especially also working with the earth in the garden. Like he was saying, that it's actually proven that it has, you know, like this healing power, so to speak, for for people. Absolutely. I mean, that's you come a little bit to the other side yeah. of my practice. Like I'm a yoga teacher, and uh -huh. that means. Like living through things through mm -hmm. the body, it's something that we had completely lost. Like mm -hmm. for certain reasons at a certain point in the history of mm -hmm. Western society, we decided that the mind and the body were mm -hmm. separate things and that the mind was in power and that we had to do things and think things through the mind and the body was just mm -hmm. a tool. Mm -hmm. And this results in a lot of diseases that we have today in our contemporary societies on a personal mm -hmm. and bodily level and also on a societal yeah. level because we got completely disconnected with our bodies and completely mm -hmm. disconnected with nature as well mm -hmm. at the same time while other philosophies like eastern philosophies mm -hmm. they see all these things as like one and somatic activities uh, coming back to mm -hmm. what you were doing so doing things through the body actually allows us to reconnect mm -hmm. this dimension, which is a very physical dimension of our being. She also tells me about Parc Farm. It's a public space on the other side of Brussels, which brings together different agricultural and ecological activities. It's actually where we were supposed to meet, but it's a rainy day, so we decided to instead pick a place with a solid roof. Maria first worked at Parc Farm as part of her postgrad at the University of Hasselt, called Building Beyond Borders. And then we found Park Farm, which was this amazing place where loads of different people come together to do different things. Mm -hmm. um, and we had some budget from the university, so we could propose a little renovation. And mm -hmm. they needed uh, some things to happen mm -hmm. there. Uh, so it was coming from them. They told us, okay, we will actually need a new shelving mm -hmm. system and a new bar, and we could do something more for the kids in the garden. So then we, as like group of researchers and students, we decided to develop different projects which were based on what we were learning mm -hmm. um, in the postgrad, in the postgrad, and bring those researches into action. So we. Um, framed this into a one-month festival, mm -hmm. which was a festival for participatory architecture. And we had like different chapters working mm -hmm. with uh, natural materials, um, working with reused materials, and also like a chapter about uh, human resources mm -hmm. and the human capital in cities. And then we had all kind of workshops where we were like making things together, doing the bricks. Like now, if you go into the greenhouse, you will see that the, the greenhouse is made with earthen bricks, mm -hmm. round earth bricks, so they are not um, baked. Uh, and then we have like a wooden shelves that are made with um, upcycled wood. Mm -hmm. And then there is a whole other part where we did more like some sewing things mm -hmm. with the help of the local community. 
It's, it's interesting because there's like so many elements, I think, when you talk about architecture or especially how public spaces are designed, whether mm. they actually encourage you to, to participate or not. Um, and kind of with that in mind, what brought you to, to the festival where we met at the, on ecofeminism? Is it a topic you've already been working on? Um, well, at the time, I was actually working on this article I told uh -huh. you about. Uh -huh. So I'm working with uh, Women in Architecture Belgium, which mm -hmm. is a network uh, um, of um, women architects mm. here that now wants to promote and talk about like young practices. Um, so they actually asked me to write about this and for me like even though ecofeminism has always been kind of like an underlying uh -huh. uh, um, thought at the base of a lot of the mm -hmm. things I do, I had actually never really thought about the mm -hmm. um, theoretical framework and even the word itself ecofeminism meant not so much to mm -hmm. me so i decided to start doing like different workshops to uh -huh. actually like understand what that means from different perspectives which are not necessarily only an architectural perspective also because in architecture this concept is not that developed yet mm -hmm. like architecture is so behind compared to a lot of different arts and uh -huh. uh, cultural um, things it's so so behind on this and we don't talk yeah, we just don't talk about any social mm. issue for some reason. Um, so especially when it comes mm. to the profession itself, profession itself. So for me, it was very important to uh, yeah. start learning and understanding all of this. And then, of course, as a women, as women, we come with some sort of legacy that mm. is with us that we brought along with in construction being a woman that's not easy at all even I as imagine. i was yeah, yeah as i was telling you before even just going to a, um, a shop where they sell tools the very fact of being a woman means that you will not be treated in the same way mm -hmm. that you will be looked in a different way mm -hmm. like I really don't recommend to wear shorts, for example, <laughs> even if it's a really hot day on uh -huh. a construction, outdoor construction site, uh -huh. uh, because you will be looked at mm -hmm. differently. Uh, but then, like, that's also the, the great challenge of these things mm -hmm. is like, just keep doing it, keep showing that there is new models and mm -hmm. we are these new models, right? So that's, that's the kind of challenge that we take over now uh -huh. and we try to do women only construction sites. Wow. Uh, um, women only or almost or anyway like trying to create inclusive spaces for construction and design mm -hmm. where we are not as architects looking at things from a pedestal mm -hmm. putting ourselves in a position of dominance but we are actually working from a place within the community mm -hmm. so my um, my understandings and my skills as an architect are brought in as skills but then there is other people that have different skills that mm -hmm. are just as important in the development of the project and it's the idea of accepting that whatever we do we are doing it together we also take a little walk around the garden where we've been talking i'm surprised at how much there is that i haven't first noticed there is so many different spaces in here that I always keep that I get, I get lost all the time. But uh, so the garden here we have like more like the cafe uh, uh -huh. with the with its terrace, and then here there is all like a kids space. There is a poulet partagé. Oh wow, I didn't see all that. Wow. Yeah. There is like a whole playground. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And then there is a castle at uh -huh. the end there, which is super beautiful. There is an oven that someone has uh -huh. built, and they do. Um, 
Uh, they do pizzas evenings uh -huh. and things like this. There is a kids room downstairs uh, with loads of different services and you can also rent it, I think, for birthday parties and things like this. Here there is a community garden. We come back inside and sit down in what looks like a living room. I asked Maria about how she ended up moving from London to Brussels. She says she moved here to join her partner two years ago. And initially, it was not the easiest time. Um, but so there were different projects. I was already collaborating with a lot of people here from Brussels. So when I arrived, I was already like in this kind of settlement. But then I had no job and uh -huh. no social aid. Uh -huh. And it was the middle of COVID and it was the middle of winter. And it was very dark. It was even darker than London. <laughs> and I didn't even know that was going to be possible, a darker place than London. <laughs> So it took me a while to find my own place, but I also came with like this boost from the very beginning uh, of knowing uh, altogether a lot of people. Uh, so yeah, what I was wondering about, because of course you, you come with a certain perspective as an architect, also mm. as somebody who has been working in architecture in different places. Um, how, how do you see Brussels as a kind of space of course, it's very difficult to tell generally about the city, but um, do you think the spaces that are the space that we have here, like public spaces especially, but also buildings like this one, um, is it something that encourages really this active participation in, in public life? So I'm going to do a simple comparison with yeah. London because yeah. that's where, where I was before. I think here on one side there is a lot less economical pressure okay. that it's put on people. It's changing huh? because mm. like uh, even. Uh, renting are changing and everything but there is a less economical pressure which means that people generally work a bit less mm -hmm. and have the time to develop other things mm -hmm. have the time to engage in social activities and there is a lot of activism actually here in Brussels which we would not necessarily see in other places, London, for example, even though there is a lot of activism in London, but it's not as spread mm -hmm. throughout people as it is here in Brussels. And of course, I mean, Brussels, there is many different communities, people mm -hmm. working in the European bubble, for example, that's a whole other thing whole and other thing, yeah. it's not necessarily really part of the dynamics of the city, but mm -hmm. if you really look the at the city, city itself, mm -hmm. Um, I think people have a lot of associative power and they really want to come together, which I find this amazing. That means that there is a lot of places that come out of this, um, like Park Farm or this place here, which are not necessarily thought of from like a policy point mm -hmm. of view, but that are more like spontaneous mm -hmm. uh, cit citizens' activities. But what I noticed as like um, an architect and a person that is very engaged in associative activities in general mm -hmm. is that here uh, there is a lot happening and that people really care about taking care of the communal uh, thing. And communal spaces, really, right? Communal spaces and communal activities and in general, like doing things for the communities mm. rather than just working for their own selves mm. from a very like selfish perspective. Like, for mm. example, in London, I feel like people have to think about themselves because it's such of a struggle and everything. It's always... Um, you always put find yourself in a position of competition mm. with other people. In addition to her work as an architect, Maria is also a yoga teacher. I ask her if it is a practice that can also be community-based and inclusive. 
I have some doubts. But Maria says yes, and she has some examples to share. With a network that is called Yoga Communautaire, we host um, pay-as-you-can classes with no reservation, where we bring, we as teachers have the mats ourselves, so you really need nothing. You just come, show up, and uh, it's very inclusive practices that have a different kind of public compared to the traditional studios. So that's also the idea of bringing a different perspective uh, to a practice that is becoming more and more colonized by a very white, skinny woman perspective, if you like. So for me, it's very important to diversify the practice and keep it as diverse and as accessible as possible, which is why I teach to all kinds of people. I also teach kids yoga, so yeah. <laughs> kids are also part of it. Yeah. But with adults, it really depends on um, the place you're in and the kind of practice that you offer. Mm -hmm. So very meditative practices tend to attract people that have more emotional needs and spiritual needs. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's also just people that come from a burnout and mm -hmm. they really need different ways of relaxing. Yesterday night I did a class and at the end of the class a woman asked me if it was okay to cry in child pose. And of course it is okay. I mean, it's a way to, through, it's, it's a medium through which emotions come up. And emotions can come up in different ways and we tend to suppress them so much, like crying in our contemporary society is so much seen as something you shouldn't do in public, especially, right? Uh, so then we spend some time talking about how emotions come up and how to deal with it and how to accept it and how not to necessarily be judgmental and how it's important also sometimes we don't necessarily need to overthink and understand mm -hmm. everything but just allow yeah. the body to express and yeah. to express and I think things. At the end I think it also ties, ties back to what you said about this being a community and also like a, a space where you feel that you can react in a certain way, do certain things. Like, in a way, I always felt like I did yoga for a while when I was a student, and I felt like it was partly very individual. Like, we were all, each of us on the mat, and yes, there were these candles that were, like, lit up, and it was supposed to make you feel together, but it didn't feel like, you know, a kind a of community space, space. Yeah, where, where that is shared. And I think if, you know, if people feel comfortable to, to cry in front of each other, it means that that means it's already a... It really depends on the kind of practices that you do. It's true that we say that yoga is an individual journey, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the, the great aim, the great purpose mm -hmm. is to understand this illusion of separateness. Mm -hmm. This thing that we constructed for ourselves, mm -hmm. thinking that our own self it's separated from the rest, but mm -hmm. it's something that in Buddhist tradition and in yogic, in Vedic tradition, we don't believe that it's true. That we believe that there is a one thing that is mm -hmm. nature and we're part of it. Mm -hmm. And this is also something that comes back in my uh, architectural practice as well, is this idea of just being one with mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. So in the end, whatever you do brings you back to this mm -hmm idea of community and the interaction with nature and the idea of being part of a system that is continually, continuously evolving and not necessarily being separated beings which mm -hmm. act from a very individual perspective. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's a wonderful way to end. Way to end, <laughs> exactly. Thank Perfect. you so much. <laughs> this podcast is produced by the European Association for the Education of Adults, edited and mixed with the support of my colleague Angeliki Anakopoulou. 
Beyond Learning will be back in two weeks for the last episode of the year. We will meet with a filmmaker who will tell us what she learned from women who cycle while she was cycling herself from Brussels to Tokyo. <laughs>